Welcome to the Mind Sensei Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and I'll be taking you on a journey to the world of martial arts and introduce listeners to some of the most aspiring and knowledgeable practitioners from around the world. Whether you're a seasoned martial artist or a curious beginner, or just enjoy hearing a great story, the Mind Sensei Podcast Down Under has something for everyone. So tune in, sit back, and let us take you on a journey through the world in martial arts. Welcome back, esteemed listeners, to the second part of our enthralling interview with the illustrious master Lee Wedlake in the realm of martial arts. If you possess the authority and expertise that he does, we are privileged to continue our conversations with this true martial arts virtuoso. In part one of our interview, we delve into the remarkable journey of Master Lee Wedlake, witnessing his rise from a dedicated judo student to achieving his esteemed senior master 10th degree black belt in American Kempo. His accolades in martial arts are only matched by his accomplishments in the aviation community where he stands as a certified flight instructor with an exceptional track record. Through his insightful writing, Master Lee Wedlake has enlightened the Kempo community, offering valuable insights in his books and articles. His teaching have garnered him admiration worldwide, making him a sought-after instructor to the highest order. In part two of our exclusive interview, we explore the profound philosophies that underpin Master Wedlake's teaching approach. Prepare to be enlightened by his perspective on continuous learning, discipline and the indomitable spirit that drives him to push the boundaries of self-improvement. Master Lee Wedlake's profound impact extends beyond martial arts as he plays a vital role at the historic side of the Alamo, showcasing his unwavering commitment to enriching the lives of others. Join us as we delve deeper into the mind of a martial arts master, learning invaluable life lessons from his experiences and wisdom. Get ready to be inspired and empowered as we continue our exclusive interview with Master Lee Wedlake on the Mind Sensei Podcast. Welcome back to the Mind Sensei Podcast and let us embark on this transformative journey together. Without further ado, let us welcome Senior Master, 10th Degree, American Kempo, Master Lee Wedlake, to the Mind Sensei Podcast. Welcome, Mr. Lee Wedlake, to the Mind Sensei podcast. Pleasure to have you, sir. A sensei of the mind, or does that mean mind like uh, pay attention to sensei? Every city. <laughs> it's everything. <laughs> With Mr. Parker, you, in 1981, you got your third degree directly from Mr. Parker. So is that when you ended up becoming his direct student? Is that right? No. 1979 is when I became his direct student. And I was a second degree, and then I would go and train out there in the event, then I tested for third under him. And you're going to laugh. When I took my third degree black belt test, he, he said, oh, I'm sorry, I got to charge you $25. <laughs> 25 bucks. <laughs> Cost you a bit more than that for the belt these days. <laughs> uh, nice, nice. That's probably a it's probably a little bit more money than that back then, but um, it's still pretty good. So back in the day, was it the old was it the old IKKA certificate you see a hundred people, hundred million people copy across the internet? With no, um, the IKKA, the big certificate you're talking about, didn't come in until um, early to mid '80s. Okay, because what you got was the uh, little eight and a half by eleven uh, U.S. size. IKK certificate. That's what all the belt ranks got. And then he got the idea to make the big one. I was on board then. He said, oh, yeah, you're going to be one of the first guys to get one of the big certificates. I was like, he was exactly right. And see, you know, he had a degree in psychology, so he knew how human beings were. But he said that was a motivator. People wanted to get that big certificate. That was a big deal. But I think he signed him in Disappearing Inc. How does that work? Well, if you look at people's certificates, he signed them, but it's like the signatures faded on everyone I've seen. Okay. Maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just the ink is not as good. Well, you know, he went from place to place, and he might have signed it with different pens, but I think it's the paper. Yeah. Okay. 
And I had my friend with that uh, glass that's supposed to filter out the UV rays and all that stuff. Yeah, it's faded. I think even if you filter out the UV rays, just the sunlight directly on it will fade certain inks. Even even these days. Yeah. Inks that you got. So I always kept it in inside of an office away from the, the windows and all. And then your last break with Mr. Parker was your sixth. Yes, it was in November, the month before he passed. So I was honored that he kicked me up and had a seminar there to uh, 6th. 30 days later, less than 30 days later, I think he was gone. And that must have been a pretty tough time for everyone. I mean, I got an early morning phone call, one of those dreaded early morning phone calls. It was uh, Edmund calling me. He said, I'm calling my father's friends to let him know that he's passed. That was a significant phone call on a couple of levels. One was that, of course, Mr. Parker had passed, and two was he said, I'm calling my father's friends. He didn't say students. He said friends. That meant a lot to me. When I had to make the announcement to my class that Ed Parker had passed away, I have still got students that were that are still with me that were there back then. And they say, we remember you had to turn turn away from us because you were crying. And it just ripped my heart out. Just absolutely uh, ripped my heart out. Mike Sanders had been killed in a motorcycle accident 10, 12 years before that. And then there was uh, Ed Parker. It's like, you know, my judo teacher was gone. It's like, oh, God. You know, people made a huge impact on my life. How did you start the CKF? Tell us a little bit about that. I moved to Florida in late 1991. I got down there, and I get this phone call from this guy named Sean Kelly. And my first thing was like, how'd you get this number? He had gotten it from Joe Palanzo. They'd known each other because Sean had lived up in Pennsylvania, which is not far from Maryland, where Joe was. Joe's Joe, of course, studied with Ed Parker. Ed Parker knew Francisco Conde. Francisco Conde was Sean Kelly's instructor. So that's how Sean met. Ed Parker, and had and knew Joe Palanzo. Well, Sean moved to West Palm Beach, Florida, which is about 100 miles east. It's on the other coast of Florida from where I was living in Fort Myers. So he calls me and he says, you know, basically he knows who I am and all that. Would I come over and, and do a seminar for him? I go over there. Apparently he liked what I was doing, so he asked me if I would teach him, which I did. And consequently, over years, he wrote me out of his history. Anyway, I introduced Sean to a lot of instructors that he didn't have an opportunity to meet. So we started throwing these camps down there in Florida. We would alternate from West Palm to Fort Myers back and forth. And so we had, you know, John Spolvita, Tom Kelly, Jeff Speakman, Huck, John McSweeney, who had brought Kimpo to Ireland because he lived in Fort Myers, Florida, not far from my school. Bill Wallace was there and, and, and so on. So uh, Reiner Schulte. We had all these people that would come out and teach so people can get a taste of what all these different lineages were like, uh, which was a good thing. Gary Ellis came down to teach. My stream instructor, Al McClucky, was there. And we said, okay, so we formed the CKF, and we were just trying to promote Kempo in South Florida. And eventually, we just got to thinking differently, so we, I left. Sean kept it, and then he immediately started charging dues and yearly fees and, and all of that stuff. So, you know, it's like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. We got it started, and then they ran with it. Then, you know, eventually I just moved off to Texas. You says here you're the co-founder of Northern American Kempo Kai in 1970. I was with Mike Sanders. He wanted to start an association, so we did. And it was called North American Kempo Kai. It was not very big, but that's how I got to meet Gil Hibben. Because Mike and Gil had been classmates at Mills Crenshaw School in Salt Lake City way back in the early 60s. Mike had some interesting stories about that, but when I went to the internationals the first time, he said, Gil's going to be there. Make sure you introduce yourself to him. And I did. And the funny part was that Gil told me later, he says, when I saw you, he said, I thought you were Mike. Because a lot of people thought Mike and I were brothers. Build was the same, and hair was the same, and the whole deal. You know, he wanted to start that group. So Gil at the time, I think, was maybe in 
think it was in Missouri at Silver Dollar City, and we had another school that was in New Mexico, and we had a couple in Illinois. It just wasn't very big. But he wanted it to go bigger. Mike had big plans. It was North America, and it was Kempo and Akai, Japanese Association. And we had a pretty cool logo that uh, with a diamond shape on it to show that the system started here and it split off, and now we're bringing it together. We had a yin-yang in there and a Tory gate and a dragon and a tiger and all that, that good stuff. It had a lot of meaning, and I had trigrams in there for the different types of power. It would have been nice if we kept it together. Once he passed away, we just said, and then I got with Ed Parker. Went to the KKA. You know, it's funny. People uh, people like to want to debate my lineage or something. It's like my first instructor, the bad one, studied with Al Tracy, who got, his, got ranked from Ed Parker. Then I trained with Sanders. Sanders trained with Mills Crenshaw, who got his rank from Ed Parker. And that... And, I trained with Ed Parker. So no matter which way you want to go, it goes back to Ed Parker. All roads lead back to Ed Parker. Yeah. I, I think that's for everybody, really. You mentioned name Kempo. Nearly every single road ends up back to Ed Parker eventually of some sort. If it's legit. I mean, some people just lie. You know. I mean, in terms of conversation and association and just the... You know, if you bring it up, his name just comes up. Yeah. It's an intertangled web. Um, <laughs> you're also a, a combat shooter. Is that combat shooter instructor? I was competitive uh, shooter, and they called it combat shooting back then. So I was an IPSC, International Practical Shooters Federation, maybe. I had learned the basics of combat shooting at bodyguard school. And then I found out that there was a way you could go out and compete. So I was doing that. And, and at one point in time, I was a class A shooter. And how did you get into that? Were you just into guns and shooting and you found your way through that? Or Well, my dad started me with a BB gun when I was a kid. In fact, I was on the BB gun team at the, uh, the YMCA. And I went through the levels there got the patches and medals and all that stuff. And then when I went to bodyguard school, I was they had an instructor in there named John Farnham. And it turns out John is an internationally known, recognized name in combat shooting. So I got my basics with him. And then when I went back home after that uh, experience at the bodyguard academy, I, it turned out that I had a couple of students that were combat shooters. So we started to go out to the range uh, for matches and so on, and I was doing that quite a bit at that uh, that point in the 80s. John Farnham was also a famous Australian singer. Oh, yeah. He is, yeah. He's an icon over here, anyway. I think he's a BB gun instructor, though, so... <laughs> yeah, no, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. I'll flick you some of his songs. You're actually quite enjoying I've also got listed here, you're an aerobatic pilot as well. You've flown in a P-51 Mustang and also in a Saab fighter jet in Sweden. The Mustang was in New Zealand, I believe. Yes. So how did you get into flying? Like that's the... I always wanted to learn how to fly. Of course, it was expensive. And when I was living in Chicago, and I rented an apartment, and I had to pass a little airport every day. So one day I went in there and said, what does it cost to learn how to fly? So I went and I took the introductory lesson, and I was hooked. I got my initial flight training at this, this little airport, and then eventually I got my private pilot license, I got an instrument rating, I got the commercial pilot license, then I went and became a flight instructor. And from the flight instructor, I got, I was a flight instructor instruments as well, so I could teach people to fly in the clouds. I went and got my multi-engine rating, and then I became a multi-engine instrument flight instructor. And I would go on to get what was called the uh, ATP or the Airline Transport Pilot License, which is essentially the highest license you can get as a pilot. And then you go on into type ratings where you're trained how to fly certain airplanes and you get that on your license, like a 767 or 737 or what have you. I was a ground instructor. I was a basic and advanced ground instructor and an instrument ground instructor as well. And I had something on my 
flight instructor license, which was, uh, it's called a gold seal. It's given to instructors by the Federal Aviation Administration that have a pass rate of higher than 80%. More than 80% of my students pass their check ride on the first go. Very few failures. I'm known as an instructor in any discipline that I teach in that I'm very thorough with what I do. I had so that, that, (laughs) (laughs) mine was, uh, also designated as a master flight instructor by the National Association of Flight Instructors. That's another extra hoop that you have to jump through in order to get that because I was also the chief check pilot and head of uh, standards and evaluation for the Florida Wing of the Civil Air Patrol, which meant that I oversaw 600 volunteer pilots, at least 50 instructor pilots uh, who were also check airmen the examiners essentially for the, uh, and that's the Air Force Auxiliary. They handle most of the inland search and rescue in the United States for the Air Force, and they have a couple other areas that they excel in besides the search and rescue. It's also aerospace education and youth programs. And along the way, I was training to become an aerobatic competitor, uh, flying upside down and doing loops and spins and rolls and cubinates and all that good stuff. And I got a chance to fly the P-51. I, I did some uh, simulated air combat training in the CI Marchetti SF-260, which is a fighter trainer. It's a prop-driven airplane, but they use it as a fighter trainer because it flies like a jet. I was a corporate pilot, and I flew turboprop and jets. And I got a helicopter license. So I had a bit of experience in the aviation industry. So was, did you do any of that? For a job? Yes. I was a chief instructor. Uh, for, well, I was a paid flight instructor at the first airport that I had trained at. Then I went over to another airport and worked for a fixed base operation there. I was their chief instructor and their liaison with the Federal Aviation Administration, what's called a Part 141 school, which has stricter standards than a Part 61 school. So I was paid as their chief instructor. And at the same time, I was uh, working as a uh, part-time pilot for uh, a company that I functioned as a first officer on a jet and a King Air. You've written a, a lot of magazine articles before, Greenside, Kung Fu, Black Belt Magazine, Karate Illustrated, Martial Arts Professional, and Karate International. How did you start getting involved in that? And how did that all come about? Well, you know, Ed Parker was an inspiration of things that he had been writing. So when I got with him, I said, well, I'm I'm starting to write this book. And I gave it to him. And when I looked back at it, I said, man, that was embarrassing. (laughs) But he read it and he said, well, yeah. And he mentored me uh, on this. And he saw that I had the interest in writing and that I had some sort of ability to write because I had taken journalism when I was in high school. So I knew basically how to structure a story, how to gather facts and not put opinion in it and and that sort of thing. I started to write. It was a way for me to synthesize what I was learning from him and compartmentalize it. So I I wrote articles on elbows and finger techniques and freestyle and forms and so on. And I would write these things. I would take them to Ed Parker. He would look at them and say, "Uh, yeah, uh, you're missing this or that's not quite right or think about this. So I wrote the first one on how to judge Kempo Forms, which was published in Inside Kung Fu around 1983 or so. And I thought there was a need for that because I had been to so many tournaments where the judges don't know what they're looking at. And that hasn't changed. No, especially in Australia. They wouldn't know what a Kempo Form was. Everywhere. I mean, here in the United States, and I've got guys that are out competing, and it's the same story. But I wrote that because I thought people really need to have a clue of what they're looking at. So they published it. I just started to submit stuff, and they said, yeah, this is great. It's great. You know, in fact, I thought now I should probably still be writing that stuff. I just got away from it and wrote the books instead. Was that article that you were offering at the time, I think you still, do you still have that running then? You had all your articles from Inside Kung Fu Magazine and different got a website that's misnamed. It's KimpoTV.com. Yeah. And there was a subscription that uh, people could get to go in there. I think it was like $29 a year and it would... Uh, yeah. yeah, that was the one. Yeah. 
give access to the uh, the old articles and other stuff that I had written. Is that still there? Yeah, it's still there. It probably it's probably there. I can't make any promises because I haven't really paid much attention to that website. And on that site, have you got the training videos still? No. Took all those off years ago. Oh, and now they're on a Vimeo platform. Okay. My web guy said this is a better way to host these. And he recommended Vimeo. Got about sixteen or eighteen hundred videos on there. Divided into two sections. Let's talk a little bit about your skills as an author. Let's talk about your books, Kempo. 101 through to 601 and uh, the Compendium, Lessons with Ed Parker, Further Insights, uh, and the other new books on the horizon. So let's talk about the first book that you started with. Was that Kempo 101? That was Kempo 101. Back in the 80s when I was writing for Insight Kung Fu, I had talked to them about doing a book and they said, yeah, we'd like to publish it. It was going to be a compilation of my stuff. And they said, uh, we'll buy the rights, but we won't publish it for about two years. And I said, well, I'm not going to wait for that. So I decided not to do the deal. Well, it would be another 10 years or more before I put the stuff in the in the print. Uh, and that was Kempo 101. And that book just came out. It just came out of me. It took six weeks to write it. And then I took the articles that I had published previously and put them into further insights into Kempo. Then I decided to write the forms books. And I was originally going to do all of them in one book. And I decided to break it up into 101, 201, and through all the way up to 601. And I did that for a couple of reasons. When Ed Parker was writing Infinite Insights, he told me that that was all going to be one book. And he said he had so much that he broke it up into numerous volumes. And it still wasn't done. So I saw this and said, the way that people use the books is a lot of times they'll sit in their, their chair and they'll read. Other times they're out on the mat and they stick it in their gi. And then they pull it back out and they stick it back in the gi. I said, it's easier to do that with a small book. I said, let's do the ones, let's do the twos, and so on. Uh, along the way, two, uh, 201 got translated into German, which was an interesting exercise. And what that taught me was that some of the phraseology that I use in English didn't translate very well. And so my translator said, what, do you, what exactly do you mean by this? So it made me clarify many points that I was able to use later on when I published the Kempo Karate Compendium, as I had contacted a publisher, and they said, we would like to take those six books and consolidate them, to put them all together. And so that was how that book came to be published. And that one was uh, done by a subsidiary of Random House, which is a huge publishing operation. Then I wrote and self-published Lessons with Ed Parker. That's one of my favorites. Is that, that was a different... Tack, I've been told that, yeah, that's your best book. Uh, so I did that one, and then I did Kempo Karate Companion, or the Kempo Companion, which was published last year. And that is because people say, well, are you going to write anything more on the self-defense techniques? And like, well, I don't really want to get into that. But I thought, here's all this related information that I wish I'd had when I started. And that's what the comment that I got from a lot of people is like, where was this book when I started? You know, almost any of my books have gotten that uh, from people. And like any other book, there's some mistakes in there, but I actually made a uh, an errata page on my website. If I found a typo or something that's transposed or just some additional information or something, I would put it up there so people could refer to it if they really just had to know. And then along the way, I wrote this fiction books with my... Uh, one of our black belts in England. So what are the three fiction books for our listeners in case they're interested? First one was called uh, Whisper from the Alamo. I've got a copy of that one. Yeah. And then it was uh, Runaway Blues and then Life on Maui. We published a third one on Amazon. It says, well, we're, we're selling these as a set. What's it called? And we're like, oh, we don't know. And we said, well, we call it Oddball America because it's designed, some of it's just outrageous uh, stuff. It's designed to give all the history in the books is accurate. I call it absurdist literature. 
you know, I want you to laugh, but I want you to get a, an insight into some human nature. And Phil is an award-winning writer in England, and he's the one that encouraged me to write fiction because I was I thought about it, but he said, no, you ought to do it. You ought to do it. And then he said, let's do it together. I said, well, okay. And it's worked out pretty well. Kimpo Karate Companion, that's not the compendium, is it? That's a different book altogether, is it? That's just been released. The com compendium was the one where 101 through 601 were uh, put together. And that companion's a new one that's just been released like last year. Yes. So can they grab these yeah. from your website? No, they have to get them from Amazon. From Amazon? Okay, so just look them up on Amazon. Let's talk about, I know Mr. Parker came to Australia and uh, I think John Van Wyke had organised for Mr. Parker to come out. That was one of your fruitful visits here with Mr. Treo as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit? I know it's a, a pretty nice pretty nice story, that one. So can you give us a bit of information on that? Well, we went down in 86. It was Dennis Canter, Frank Treo, and myself that went with Mr. Parker down there. And John had set up a series of uh, demos and uh, seminars, TV interviews, and then he had a tournament. You know, to cap it off. So I think we were down there about a week. And I met John Van Wyke and many of his black belts along the way. One in particular was Mike Krim, great guy. Um, still keep in contact with him today. He's living in England. So yeah, that was, that was fun. It was one of my first times. It was my first time to Australia. Uh, that year I had gone to Channel Islands where I met Graham. And I was there with Ed Parker and Skip Hancock and Dennis. So 1986 was a big year for me meeting people uh, outside the country. Uh, we went back in 1987, and we had 13 people on the team. We had Mrs. Parker. I think Sherry Parker was with us. Uh, same sort of thing with demos and TV interviews and all that good stuff. And then culminated with a tournament on Sunday, which ended in a riot which was an interesting experience. It started because one of our guys was fighting a Taekwondo guy who didn't, his instructor didn't take kindly to, be, to his student losing to uh, those blankety-blank Americans. He went storming off and threw a chair into the crowd, and then one of the people he hit with the chair was in, was in the local Screamer group. Turned out to be Rami Praises, his brother, Ernesto. Uh, was the head instructor of that group. Well, that started a big fight. And it was just, it was an eruption of people. And I'd been in a riot before. So I, I saw this and, <laughs> yeah, you know, Mr. Parker is a student of human nature. So he kind of moves forward. He's, he's watching what's going on. He says, hey, did you see this guy? He did this and that. Well, I grabbed him by his belt and I said, stand back here. Don't go any farther forward because... I don't know who's in that crowd. And I don't know what they might have planned. I don't want to, them to somebody to stick at Parker with a knife or something when this is going on. We managed to get the family safe, get some of our teammates safe. We block off some some entries so that we can get them out side door because the the fighting is spreading and spreading and spreading and it works its way out toward the front of the gymnasium, and then it seemed to stop and then it flares up again and then the cops show up. It was a mess. None of our guys got injured, but it was pretty interesting experience. It became one of those iconic happenings in the Kempo history. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard the story told before. John Van Wyke told me this. I think he said one of the Eskrima professors grabbed his sticks and he was stepping like, you know, Remo Williams from, from chair to chair, smacking all these guys left, right, and center, clearing them out. <laughs> I, uh, I remember looking over and seeing him standing on a chair with a baston and, his, and he cracks this guy in the head and lays his skull open and there's blood everywhere. And I like, wow, look at that. So that was your first trip to Australia in 1986? Yes, I went in 86 and 87 and I've been back three times since. I know you were back. We had a kids championships here. <laughs> I love bringing this up. <laughs> it brings on the giggles. We had a kids' championships here, and we had kids come from all the different schools around. 
one of the schools is up Greenvale Way. All the people they put in their entry forms, except for the Greenvale, they were a little bit older than all the other kids too. And then they rocked up at a tournament, had me all their forms, and uh, you were there, and I gave you one of the main rings and said, right, this is your ring. You run it. You look after it. Make sure nobody gets hurt. Yep, got it. <laughs> We'd line these two kids up. And it actually happened to be one of the one of the kids in my school did not want to compete. And I said, you know, he, he was excellent at form. Like, he was sharp. I said, look, I want you to go in. I want you to go in forms. Like, you're going to clean up. You, you got, you know, you're crisp, you're sharp, your forms are excellent. Go in the forms. So what does he do? He goes into sparring. Doesn't go in the forms. So he enters in sparring. Anyway, his mum's watching from the sidelines and he goes, you officiate one of the older teenage kids that were up against him. He wasn't a big kid at all. And uh, I remember you sort of waved your hand, no hitting to the face. There was no no headshot because they're all kitted up and mouth guard. And you even waved your hand in front of the poor kid's face. And it was sort of like signaling, this is where you're going to kick the kid. So the two students were not matched as a smaller, younger student to a larger teenager from the Greenvale side. The match starts... And he kicks him directly in the face and drops him and splits his lip. And the look on your face was priceless. More so, the look on my face when you came to tell me that we have a bit of an issue. Anyway, I was impressed with the discussion afterwards. Well, we talked about the next course of action. And as a no contact to the face rule, I said, he's got to be disqualified. So you took charge, lined him up and disqualified the opponent, took care of business. So I did get a lot of grief from his mother guilting me about him not even wanting to even compete. The fact that I asked him to uh, compete in forms only and then he went into sparring, totally ignoring my advice, didn't really help. But anyway, that was the end of his Kempo training, which is unfortunate because he was actually a talented young individual. I did notice in your journey that you had a stingray with the Kempo number plates on it. So I'm not sure if we spoke about that last time. I think that was the 79 called that. Never saw it again. Did you sell it with the plates on it? No, it was stolen. Okay. It got stolen, yeah. Did you get the plates back? No. Then it isn't back. That's a bit of a shame. Yeah. <laughs> but I have noticed that you trained in Sistema. Tell us a little bit about that. How you got involved. Sistema is the Russian martial arts, I'm sure you know. It's taught to the Russian military. I came across it in 1999. I, somebody gave me a videotape and they handed me this VHS tape and they said, watch this and you're going to laugh your butt off. It had some other arts on there as well. And I got to the Sistema part and I sat up. It's like, whoa, well, this is high level stuff. So I don't think people really realize what they're seeing. And I see the videos on uh, Facebook and so on, and people say, oh, you know, it's all fake and everything. Well, until you get out there and get hands-on with some of these guys, and it's like any other art, it's not the art, it's the man that does it, or woman. Getting hands-on with Vladimir Vasiliev was quite eye-opening. And it's it's funny because he looked at what, what I was doing in Kempo, and he says, that's what you do? I said, yes. He says, we do the same thing. Well, if you say so, <laughs> but it's, you, you might almost call it a soft system, but it sure doesn't feel soft uh, when you do it. And it's very well-rounded. There are a lot of aspects to it with the health aspect, the self-defense, the weapon work, material that's taught to uh, their special forces, a lot, of, a lot of knife work, gun work, gun defense, the whole deal. I like it. I like it a lot. I like the way it feels. It's just, like I said, you have to get out there and get hands-on with some of these guys. I interviewed Martin Wheeler, who's just before you, actually. He's got a lot of interesting things to say about it. Actually, piqued my interest. That was the one that introduced Martin to Sistema. I don't know if he mentioned that in his interview. It was, uh, we had a seminar down there in Florida. Martin was there, and we were standing on a sideline watching Vladimir work. And it was one of those things where we looked at each other like, wow. And Martin just said, I got to get out there. And he joined the group. And actually, B and Martin tried to uh, get the best of Vladimir, was convinced 
this is a good thing. Nice. <laughs> also, I know you do some Tai Chi as well. How did you get involved in that? Funny story, I was at the gym one morning very early when I lived up in Chicago. It was a Nautilus gym, and they have this one machine. It's a, got a tricep uh, extension machine, and there's two seats that face each other. So I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm doing my reps, and the guy across from me sees my T-shirt, which is a big Kempo crest. It's at Ed Parker's uh, karate studio. And he looks at me, and he says, so you do Kempo? I said, yeah. He said, who's your teacher? He said, Ed Parker. And his eyes get big. And really? I said, yes, really. We get to talk, and turns out that he studies with a very high-level Tai Chi instructor named Wei Sun Liao, who was based out of Chicago, who had at the in his late twenties was designated as a master uh, back in Taiwan. It's very unusual because he was so young, and he relocates to Chicago, and he's been there forever since the the seventies, I think. So this man's name is Bill Grizzle. In fact, he's still teaching. Was recently designated as a master by Sifu uh, Liao. As we got to talking, he says, well, I'd really like to, to work some staff work. And I said, well, I'd like to learn some Tai Chi. They do what's called a temple system, which is known as being a kind of a difficult system to learn. And he started teaching me the Tai Chi. And then uh, when I relocated to Florida, I was looking for an instructor. And I managed to accidentally run into these two men, Peter Anazone and Tom Bailey. Peter had done a little bit of study in Hong Kong where he learned Qigong exercises and acupressure. Tom had studied with Professor Cheng Man Cheng, who is a national treasure in China and had taught in San Francisco and then uh, moved to New York where he taught, and that's where Tom studied with him. So to me, it was analogous to being, you know, he's a first-generation student under uh, Professor and I was a first generation under Red Parker, so his lineage relationship was very much like mine. I learned an awful lot from Tom. So he really, he worked with me for years on the Tai Chi in the Yang system. Yeah, no, we've done some Tai Chi with you at camp early mornings, which is hard after you've had a few drinks at camp, but still worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Just looking at your progression through with your rate, you're with Mr. Parker. You trained with Mr. Parker and Mr. Treo for two years, promoted to third degree in 1981, introduced to Mr. Planus 1982 at the internationals, studied concurrently with Mr. Planus and Mr. Parker, Treo, promoted him to fifth degree in 1986. Mr. Parker then promoted to sixth degree in November 1990, one month before his passing. Then you have Mr. Treo and Mr. Plas promote you to 7th in 1993 of June. And in 1998, Mr. Planus promoted you to 8th. In October 2006 was your ninth degree in Tucson. December 2018. And the big question I'm getting to is the 10th degree rank. Taking that with Bob White and John Spalbera and Sigal Labounty. Tell us a little bit about your 10th degree and, yeah, about your journey there with the 10th degree. I'm sure you had a lot of thoughts in your head and different things going on, like most people. There's a lot of, it's a pretty big responsibility for a lot of people. And, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot of deep thought going on there. Well, uh, there was a course, and I outlined it uh, in, in detail in uh, the last chapter of my last book the uh, Campbell Companion, because there were four of us that became known as the Four Horsemen who were not real excited about going to 10th, and we had spent years resisting this, moving up. And it wouldn't be until 2018 we said, well, we, we, we got to do this. In my mind, there was a list of two or 300 people that had already taken the 10th. I thought a lot of them were kind of questionable. I don't know where they came from, but that's their business. I can't keep anybody else's house clean. So I was just not comfortable because 
I always had this mental image of Mr. Parker wearing that tenth, and I just couldn't see myself wearing that belt. He's, you know, you might call him an outlier. He's one of the uh, most prominent instructors of the martial arts over time. You know, I'm looking at Mr. Parker being mentioned up there with the, the luminaries of martial arts like Kano and Funakoshi and, and so on. I don't see myself as being up there, but just, you know, I'm not at Parker, never going to be at Parker, don't want to be at Parker, but it doesn't mean that I can't move up to that level. If you look at some of the traditional requirements for somebody going to 10th in a Japanese system, for example, I've met them. Being a teacher, a coach, a writer, producing educational materials, doing seminars, coaching competitors, being a competitor, and the whole deal. And with longevity in the art, and then looking back and saying, well, the people behind you have to have a place to go. So if I stick at ninth, that kind of puts a cap on these guys. Uh, they could go around, or they can come up even, of course. I got a lot of pressure. And finally, uh, when Seagun Labounty, Seagun did not want to do it. He just didn't want to do it. Uh, when it finally came about, it was, I, I got the word that Seagun said, I'll do it if Wedlake goes with me. So, John Spolveda and I, yeah, no pressure. I said, okay, well, now I've got to do it. He's a senior, got to do it. There was a lot of introspection that went along with it. At that point, was the Kempo Senior Council around, or was that when it was formed? Or you No, know, there were two iterations of the Senior Council. The first was many, many years ago with Seabach, Tom Kelly, uh, French Rejo, Bob White, Brian Duffy. Brian was really instrumental in that. And then we tried to get it off the ground again about 10 years or so ago, and it really didn't fly. We tried to make it as uh, the AKSC as being an instructor certification group, but it just didn't didn't seem to go. So no, it didn't exist. In your bio here, it, we've got that you've been inducted into the Kempo Karate Hall of Fame, Masters Hall of Fame, awarded the Mike Stone Leadership Awards, Illinois State Martial Arts Hall of Fame. How does all that come about? Was, is that four different organizations or someone nominates you? They're all different groups. You're nominated. I mean, they're over here in the United States. Uh, when I was running a commercial studio, I'd let them a few times a year from these groups that said, you're being inducted into the Hall of Fame for the low price of pay your money, you go to the bank, wait to see the certificate, the ring, the belt, or, or what have you, and threw those things away. So I was nominated for these other ones. Bob White nominated me for the Masters Hall. Uh, Paul Casey informed me that I was being inducted into the Kempo Karate Hall of Fame. So these groups are, are just like the Illinois State Hall of Fame. I was like, I was surprised that I got it, uh, pleasantly surprised. And I couldn't make the uh, event for the induction. But when I went up in Chicago to do a seminar, Pete Hoffman and Mike McNamara, who are the prime movers of that organization, showed up at the seminar and presented it to me, which I thought was that was a class act. Because other halls of Hall of Fame organizations like, well, you're not here, you don't get it. I got a got an award from Europe, I think from Ireland years ago, totally by surprise, I got a, a little Hall of Fame statue. They didn't ask for any money. Or anything is just brother. We think you're you're a pretty good guy. So here you go. And I got a certificate from another group with a patch and all that. World Martial Arts Hall of Fame. That I was like, I don't know where this came from. So uh, you can get stuff like that every every now and again. So it's you know it's kind of nice. I think the legitimate stuff's pretty good. I mean, you do get all these other emails and invitations, like you said. Provide your credit card number, and we can tell you your, your Jedi name. You know the numbers on the back. <laughs> it's like, okay, so you've been inducted in the Hall of Fame. Whose Hall of Fame is, and how much right. is that actually costing you? Right. I think a lot of them have an award dinner and stuff like that. They don't they? so they got to sort of cover the costs in some some sort of format. Yeah. What advice would you have to someone who was starting out in martial arts? If, if someone came to you and said, "I'm looking to start up in martial arts." What advice would you give to them? 
tell people that they need to go visit several schools and watch them teach. I understand a lot of the schools don't let you do that anymore. And so that's an issue because I think you and an instructor have to have some sort of rapport. You have to see how they teach because it may not be so much the art, but that instructor is going to be critical in your development. If they have a, a kind of a general sense of what type of art they want to do, they like kicking, punching, are they a grappler, are they a striker, or they want to do weapons work or what have you. I mean, a lot of people just don't know at first. So if they're asking, this is a good thing. Getting with that teacher and seeing how they do their thing is that I think that's the critical point. If you had to impart some words of wisdom to our listeners, if you have a motto or a mantra or something that you live by, what would that be? Well, I think that anything's possible. You'll probably be, probably be surprised several times in the course of your life what you've been able to do, and you need to just get out there and, and give it a shot. I try to lead by example. I mean, I thought Jeff Speakman's group had a great tagline, which was lead by example, followed by choice. I like that a lot. And I try to do that. I try to lead by example. If I'm asking you to do something, unless it's a cartwheel kick. Well, unless you can still do it, then it's different, right? <laughs> With moving to San Antonio, Texas, you went to work at the Alamo. We have spoken about that. As a tour guide, then there's Alamo Ranger, and you've led training as officers, your first aid, CPR, AED, and a taser instructor. Tell us about that. You must have a great story about that. Well, not really. We needed to put in instructors. Axon is the company that makes tasers and provides the training. So we hosted a, a training set. We hosted two, actually, last four years to train instructors. Being the training sergeant, actually, when I went to school, they said, well, you know, you're a teacher in other disciplines, so let's send you to taser school. I said, okay. So it's always, it's electricity, man. It's got to be fun. <laughs> Uh, the training is very interesting, not only for how the weapon functions, but the tactics. That's one of the big pluses to going through that program. I've never had to tape anybody. I've had to pull my weapon out a couple of times. I've never actually had to deploy the taser. You had to pull your weapon out as in the taser or as in the gun? Taser. Yeah. Just making sure that's clear. I know you Texans like your guns, so just ask it. <laughs> That's why I like coming there. <laughs> Do you have a story on Mr. Trejo at all that you want to share? Boy, I got stories. Frank was always good to me. He was like a brother. And he told me that I was responsible for being the first person to have him fly out and do a seminar. He'd never done one prior to that. And I thought it was the least I could do because, you know, I was down at the Pasadena uh, studio. Mr. Parker said, go work with Frank. Frank spent a lot of time with me on the technique, the forms, the fighting, the drinking, and so on. Flew him out to Chicago on multiple occasions. And like with himself and Hawk, I introduced them to people at schools. I kind of broke them into other states so that they could expand their influence, which I thought was a good thing because they were both great martial artists. What do you envisage in the future of your lineage, and what advice would you have to your people? I've been working on the guys for many, many years. It brings me joy that when I start asking them about rather complex concepts and so on, that they're just they're using critical thinking to analyze what they're doing. And that's what Ed Parker wanted from us. He wanted us to be self-correcting by applying the principles, and I'm I'm seeing that now. So much more assured that the system is in good hands uh, as we're moving forward. And we're working on some other, I call them plug-in programs. Like I think there should be a little bit more internal work, some Qigong that the guys should probably learn. And uh, we're working on this program called the Locksmith, which is the joint locking, probably a lot like what uh, Todd Durgan is doing up there in the Northwest United States. 
You know, just they got good, clean, solid basics. They're teaching. They're good people, and that's what we need. We say we don't teach martial arts. We teach people. It's the people that teach it that are important, not so much the system, as I mentioned in one of the other questions you had asked me. So this is a good, solid street self-defense system for civilians. It's adaptable for military bodyguards, police, firefighters, and so on. The guys are, are getting good experience with teaching these things, and, and I'm just trying to do what I'm supposed to do, which is to be a guide. Fun. How do you stay motivated and continue to progress in your martial arts journey as time passes on and also in times of struggle or injury? I've read things by people wiser than myself who said, you have to change the way you train as you get older. And it's absolutely true. You know, sometimes you get upset. It's like, I'm not healing up as fast. I'm not as flexible as I was. I'm not as strong as I used to be. Well, you just got to keep at it. I'm in the gym for five days a week. I'm doing uh, cardio. I'm doing some weights. Deal with the injuries. You, you got to train smart. As far as the motivation, it's like, well... For one, I'm supposed to be a leader, so I need to be able to do these things, be worthy of that position. So what keeps me motivated is not only that, it's like I remember Steve Labonte saying once about Johnson Holder, he says, I got him, he's right behind me, and I've got guys right behind me. I got to pedal as fast as I can, so that's one motivation. The other is just to see how the guys and, and girls are coming along and how they're spreading the art, how well they're teaching the art, how well they understand the art and can explain the art. And they're starting to go out and develop things. They are producing educational materials. They're teaching in the schools. They're doing seminars. That's what I like to see. I can't do this all myself, and I'm not going to be around forever. That's the main one of the main motivators is just to see what they're doing. And it keeps me stimulated because they ask me questions that I have to start digging pretty deep for because they're getting pretty sophisticated, their understanding of the art. So it's it's a good thing all around. Let's discuss about your books. Uh, we have talked about them before in the, earlier in the episode. Can you tell us a little bit about the books you've written now? Which ones are still available? And they're on Amazon, I believe. Is that right? Or can they purchase right. them? Right, yeah. The, uh, the Kempo Compendium and the Kempo Companion are both available on Amazon. Companion's the most recent book. It turned out to be bigger than the uh, Compendium. Compendium is what it says. It's taken the information out of the forms book and been compiled into one volume. Companion addresses uh, several other aspects of the art that people had asked me about over the years. Although it, it's not a self-defense book per se, it doesn't show it. Even though they can be to see, it addresses mechanics, uh, anatomical weak points, physiology, um, strategies, and, and how to teach, and, and that sort of thing. But those are the only two food that are available. I'm going to tell you, this is the press release, I'm looking to re-release Lessons with Ed Parker. That's an excellent book. That's probably my favorite that you've written. I want to do that probably next year. That is my plan. For people interested in training and reaching out to you, get you out for seminars, can you let us know where they can reach you and how they can get in contact with you? They can uh, email me at lee at leewedlake.com. They can contact me through my Facebook page. So you're available for seminars. Still, Are you traveling internationally for seminars still, or is that just within America? Still uh, doing seminars. I'm not as busy as I used to be because I, I have a full-time job. Uh, being a training officer, I got my hands full. I do a lot of policy writing and that sort of thing as well. And I interface with other agencies like the local PD, the Department of Public Safety, the uh, Department of Homeland Security, and so on. So I've got a lot going on. And in terms of books, we know you have your own books, but are there any other books? Because I know you're an avid book reader. Are there any other books you would recommend to our readers that they should get their hands on? 
Yes, there are lots of them. I would read uh, Living the Marshall Way. I don't remember the author's name. He's a lieutenant colonel. I would read uh, Colonel well, David Grossman's material, such as On Killing and On Combat. So, you know, I've got a section on my bookshelf set aside for Marshall's Apology and that sort of thing. Well, the Little Black Book of Violence is pretty good. You should probably go and take another look at the Book of Five Rings by Musashi, Sun Tzu, Clausewitz on military tactics. Those are good. Extreme Fear is the good book on how your mind works under stress which I think is important to know as well. I mean, I could go on and on. We, we talked about time dilation earlier in our interview. Is there any books on time dilation that you know? I don't know if there's any books on it, but Extreme Fear addresses that. Okay. I'll just say the thanks for the copy of the compendium you sent. Mm -hmm. Much appreciated. Perfect timing. Let our listeners know how they can reach out. I know you've got a Vimeo.com site with subscription and a lot of videos. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how they can subscribe to that? It's split up into two tiers. There's one for beginner and intermediate, and there's for advanced and skilled with the official section for instructors, which is how to teach or by subscription. It's a uh, take a subscription, cancel anytime. Uh, there's even a rental function. You go through here and see a video that you like, you can rent it for $2 for 24 hours. You can just look me up on Vimeo, and you said you have the links there. So I've got vimeo.com forward slash on demand Kenpo 401 and on demand forward slash Kenpo 101. Why? So, yeah, there's about eight or 900 videos on each tier. So you got the basics, the techniques, the forms, the extensions, the freestyle techniques. Uh, terminology, and so on. I'm sure some of our listeners will be interested in that. Used by a lot of people around the world because it's 24-7 access. And you can go in there and, and look at something as much as you want. So, and, you know, we used to say, well, you can't learn stuff by watching videos. Well, yes, you can. Yeah. <laughs> with the amount of information that's out there these days, you can't. We're just saying that with the amount of information out there, if you don't provide something, Someone else is going to provide it as well. So you know, people can see you can't you can't fool people anymore either with what you're teaching because so much information is available out there. They can soon figure out if you're a phony or if you're real just based on what you're teaching. But it was true they once said you can't learn off a video, and then people started creating home video study courses. <laughs> Thing is, you know, it's like the Gracies; they've got it down to a T. So you can learn it off the video and you get yourself a partner to work with. And then you have to show up to be examined. That's the critical point right there. That's a critical point. Yeah. You got to show up so you can see it. It's, don't send me a video of how you're doing. I need to see you in person. Thank you, Mr. Lee Wedlake, for joining us on the Mind Sensei podcast and sharing your journey, sir. Always a pleasure to talk to you and appreciate your words of wisdom. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe out there, guys. Well, thanks for doing all this for everybody. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. Someone had to. And seeing as I got the skill, I might as well step forward and do it. Yeah. I didn't have the skill. I've got the skill now. <laughs> but it was another bucket list thing. Thank you. Well, all right. I'm back to you. Bye. See you soon. Yeah. As we reach the conclusion of this remarkable two-part interview, we are left in awe of the profound wisdom and authoritative insights shared by Master Lee Wedlake. His journey throughout the world of martial arts and aviation, coupled with his dedication to continuous learning, serves as a beacon of inspiration to us all. Throughout our conversation, Master Wedlake has exemplified the qualities of a true martial arts sensei, guiding us on the path to discipline, respect and unwavering passion. His teachings have resonated deeply with the martial arts enthusiasts and learners alike, leaving an indelible impact on our minds. From achieving the esteemed 10th degree black belt, senior master in American Kempo Karate, to his contributions as a certified flight instructor, 
and a dedicated ranger at the Alamo, Master Lee Wedlake's journey is a testament to the power of perseverance and self-discovery. We extend our heartfelt gratitude to Master Lee Wedlake for gracing us with his presence and sharing his profound expertise. His authoritative voice has undoubtedly enriched our understanding of martial arts and life itself. As we conclude this two-part interview, we encourage you, our esteemed listeners, to carry forward the invaluable lessons learnt from this martial arts virtuoso. Embrace the spirit of continuous learning, discipline and relentless pursuit of excellence in all that you do. Thank you for joining us on this enlightened journey with Master Lee Wedlake on the Mind Sensei podcast. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations with extraordinary individuals as we continue to explore the realms of knowledge, inspiration and self-mastery. Until next time, remember to keep your minds open and your spirits authoritative as you strive towards becoming the best versions of yourself. Thank you for joining us today and until next time, may you walk the path with strength and wisdom and unwavering spirit. I'm your host, Peter Taz, signing off from the Mind Sensei podcast. And for those of you wishing to reach out to Master Lee Wedlake, who's available for seminars and for online learning, is available at kempotv.com, also available on email at lwedlake1 at gmail.com. It's also available on Facebook on www.facebook.com forward slash Lee Wedlake Kenpo. He also has his website at kempotv.com for online training and also has vimeo.com training platform, vimeo.com forward slash on demand forward slash Kempo 401 and vimeo.com on demand forward slash Kempo 101 in two tiers available there. Or you can click on the links available in our show notes. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei podcast, and thank you again to Master Lee Wedlake for sharing his story and his time with us. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and you've tuned in to the Mind Sensei podcast from Down Under. I want to take a moment to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the Mind Sensei podcast. We appreciate your support and hope our show has been both informative and entertaining for you. If you haven't already done so, we would like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. By subscribing, you'll be the first to know when we release new content and you'll have access to all of our past episodes. We also encourage you to visit our website at mindsensei.au where you can find additional resources related to martial arts. On our site, you can read blog posts, videos, and learn more about the guests we feature on our show. Finally, we'd like to thank our guests for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. Without their generosity, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei podcast down under. We hope that you continue to join us on this journey through the world of martial arts.